Good morning. It's good to have you here. Let me just say a prayer for us as we begin. Dear Lord God, thank you for the stories um, that you tell us through um, stories told in our culture, um, told even outside your church, but especially we give you thanks for your grand story of salvation, for the way you have worked our stories and woven them into your story of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we ask now, speak to us through this story and through the scripture that, um, that shows us what this story means. Um, speak to our hearts and draw us ever closer to you um, through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I realized um, next year when I do the run-up to the Oscars, I'm going to pick movies that are popular, whether they're movies that I particularly like or not, because the movies that I like seem to all be weird enough that not many people have seen them. So if you're here, have any of you seen the Grand Budapest Hotel? Ooh, I'm not as weird as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pete. I agree. Well, if you haven't seen it, this is the latest Wes Anderson installment. Wes Anderson is a great director, started off with Bottle Rocket and Rushmore in the late 90s, and probably my favorite film of his, and one of my favorite films of all time, is The Royal Tenenbaums. Um, And you sort of see some of his standards um, repeated throughout his films, and we'll talk about them in a, in a minute after you see the trailer, so that just in case you're not familiar with his style, you'll get a good sense of it from the trailer of this movie that came out last year around this time. Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Who wouldn't? At the Crown Budapest, sir. And so my life began. Junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of Mr. Gustav H. Many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. Not at all. This was also when I met Agatha. She's charming. She's so charming. Is it Gloria with you? Yes. I approve of this union. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right now. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. Thank you. You're looking so well, darling. You really are. I don't know what sort of cream they've put on you down at the morgue, but I want some. This is Madame D's last will and testament to Monsieur Gustav H. I bequeath painting on his boy with apple. What? Who's Gustav H? I'm afraid that's me, darling. If I learn you ever once laid a finger on my mother's body, living or dead, I could expect to fool my friends. We need to make a plan for your survival. Hide this. It's in code and you might need a magnifying glass to read it, but it tells you exactly where and how to find boy without him. I'm a baker. I'm not a dentist. It's not the truth. Oh, sorry. I want roadblocks at every junction for 50 kilometers. I want rail blocks at every train station for 100 kilometers. Get it! I want 50 men and 10 bloodhounds ready in five minutes. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. Take your hands off my lobby boys! I've been 
questioned by the authorities. Yes, on an occasion. What, what, what? I was arrested and tortured by the rebel militia after the desert uprising. Right. Well, you know the drill, then. Now that you've seen all the most offensive parts in the trailer, I apologize <laughs> profusely. I forgot about some of those offensive parts. This is not a G-rated movie, as you can tell. It is definitely R for language, and but no violence, and some strange references. Um, but it is clearly whimsical, clearly meant to be a comedy, like all of Wes Anderson's films. And so you can't take it too seriously, right? Um, it is a comedy as grand as the fluff of the pastries that are featured prominently in, um, in the movie. And so um, there's one thing, there's so many different things about it that are really incredible. But one thing to remember about a comedy is that the trajectory of a comedy, if I had my whiteboard, I could draw it, but I'm going to act it out for you instead. Um, if you think about two kinds of films or story, you know, any kind of story, fiction, film, um, whatever kind of story you might have, it can have two directions that it will go. A tragedy, right? Tanks. Things start out bad, maybe they get a little bit better, so you climb the mountain a little bit, and then after um, the, the middle point of the drama, um, the tragedy just goes straight downward, doesn't it? And it, it just get, goes from bad to worse, or it goes from slightly better to bad to worse, um, all the way down the hill. Um, but uh, um, a comedy is a different directional um, it, it plot, and you could say if if a if a tragedy is like a giant mountain, a giant hill going way down, a comedy is more like a ditch, like a U-shaped. So starts out okay, things start out okay, top of the world, fine, 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 and then bad things happen, and then it gets goes from bad to worse, and then it gets as bad as you could possibly imagine, um, and then. Yet, even there at the bottom of that trajectory, at the bottom of the ditch, um, even so, at the end, there's hope. And there's some kind of restoration and some kind of joy, some kind of happy ending, even at the end. That's a comedic trajectory. And so one of the things I always say whenever I teach on comedy, so if you've heard it before, please forgive me. Well, what is the gospel? As we have it in Scripture, some New Testament commentators have said um, that the story, in particular in the Gospels, of Jesus' own life and death, many New Testament scholars consider Jesus' story to be a horrible tragedy. The good die young. A horrible martyrdom. That things were okay, they were going really great, he had a great following, he was preaching and teaching and healing, and it was really awesome. And then he just tanked. From there, he um, was arrested, betray betrayed, arrested, tried, um, executed, crucified, and it gets down into the bottom, the depth of despair. And so you see it as being, a lot of these commentators will think that the gospel, and in particularly the story of Jesus Christ our Lord, is a tragedy, a mountain, when in fact it's actually not a tragedy, it's a comedy. Even as things are at the pit of despair, at the bottom of the ladder, then um, at the resurrection, we know that God has pronounced once and for all that Jesus' death, by his death, we are forgiven our sins. And then because of his rising, we are promised eternal life. So the story of Jesus Christ in our story, as it's tied in with his story, is not in fact a tragedy tanking but rather a comedy that even when it's at its worst, we can trust 
that God will redeem even the worst situations and bring us out of the ditch. Any thoughts about that? That alone is a reason why you can watch comedies. There are so many reasons why to watch comedies. But that alone is a reason why this comedy is, um, affects me personally. Um, so then continuing on, it's whimsical. It just makes me laugh, and I have a strange sense of humor. One of my favorite jokes from the Royal Tannenbaum is that all of these jokes are very witty and strange and obtuse. You have to have a strange personality to really enjoy them. But the Royal Tannenbaum, there's this great moment when this child, under the protection of Bill Murray's character, and if you remember the Royal Tannenbaums, if you've seen it, it is the epic, epically dysfunctional family of geniuses. There are, are three children, and they all have major daddy issues. And their dad, the lovable scoundrel, returns on the scene, um, tries to remarry their mother, to, you know, and she rebuffs him, of course. She's she, um, it, just, it, it is hilarious. He tries to reconnect with his family because he knows he is um, terminally ill. So it's just a really interesting comedy, but one of my favorite moments is when Bill Murray's character has this protege in his care, a little, I forget his name, it begins with a D, bonus yeah. points. What? Dudley, yes, bonus points. Um, and do you remember the moment when Dudley is staring at a cab, and these cabs in this fake New York City have all of these dents. I mean, they are the most beat-up cabs you've ever seen in your life. And Dudley has this strange disease where he's not able to see the big picture of things. Like he, I can't remember what it is, but Bill Murray's character explains it. It's very um, abstract, whatever illness he has, whatever learning disability. And he's staring at the cab, and he's right up close to it. The cab is dented all over it, and the, there's actually no window. There's like a garbage bag for a window. And he's staring there, and he's outraged. He's like, there's a dent right there. And you're thinking, there's a dent all over the it is just, and that is the moment when in the movie theater in New York, when I went to see that in 2002, I just started laughing uncontrollably. And I was the only person in the full movie theater that was laughing, laughing, and I thought, there is something wrong with me. And if there's something wrong with me, then there's something wrong with Wes Anderson. So there is this sense in which all of Wes Anderson's films give this permission, um, send us the message that we are all a little bit broken that we all have a little bit of a skewed sense of humor, that um, many of our relationships are dysfunctional, and that is actually normal. It's normal to have dysfunctional family relationships, unfortunately, in our fallen and broken world. And sometimes the best thing you can do is laugh about it. Because it's the beginning of the healing, right? It's to start laughing and to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves too seriously. Well, this particular film, uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel, I really do think it's one of Wes Anderson's greatest films. It is, um, it's definitely, uh, um, it's just a laugh. It is a laugh from beginning to end. One commentator, one uh, critic called it a wild romp. So it's both comedy and mystery. You know, it's like a whodunit, except you know whodunit. Um, and it just makes fun of that category. Um, and then the characters, there are so many celebrity cameos that it makes you sick. You get dizzy with how many cameos there are. It starts off with Tom Wilkinson, and it just keeps picking up the pace. Jude Law, then um, Rafe Fiennes, then, uh, oh, um, so many others, and I'm going to lose. Jason Schwartzman. Just, it's a series of cameos. Tilda Swinton plays the 84-year-old lover of the concierge um, who dies. Um, she's the victim at the very beginning. Um, but one of the most important relationships and the two most important characters in the whole film are Monsieur Gustave, who is played by Ray Fiennes, 
and then Zero, who, uh, Zero Mustafa. And Zero Mustafa is the lobby boy to Ray Fine's concierge. I can even talk. Okay, so here is here's the first um, scene where you see Zero. Who are you? I'm Zero, sir. The new lobby boy. Zero, you say? Yes, sir. Well, I've never heard of you. never laid eyes on you. Who hired you? Mr. Mosher, sir. Mr. Mosher? Yes, Monsieur Gustav. Am I to understand you've surreptitiously hired this young man in the position of a lobby boy? He's been engaged for a trial period, pending your approval, of course. Uh, perhaps, yes. Thank you, Mr. Mosher. You're most welcome, Monsieur Gustav. You're now going to be officially interviewed. Should I go and light the candle first, sir? What? No. Experience. Hotel Kinski, kitchen Six months. Hotel Berlitz, Mopping Room, the Perugans. Before that, I was a skillet scorpion. Experience zero. Thank you again, Mr. Gustav. Great in that cap, Anna Bone. That is my addition. The chance does this. These are not acceptable. I fully agree. Education. I studied reading and spelling. I started my primary school. I was Education zero. Not exploded. Good morning, sister. Call the goddamn trauma. This afternoon. Pardon, pardon. That day will probably be one man. Not now. Family? Zero. Six, you go. Zero. Right? He says experience. Zero. <coughs> Education. Zero. Family, zero. This young refugee boy, you find out he's a refugee later on in the film, um, is, has nothing to offer. He walks into this hotel, and this hotel is like a layered cake in its beauty, in its extravagance, in the decadence that's exhibited there. Um, and his story, Zero's story, here in 1932, in which most of the story is set, is actually the story within the story within the story. Um, the storyline in the Grand Budapest Hotel is like nesting dolls. So this flashback to 1932 is being reminisced in 1968 by the adult uh, Zero, Mustafa. And it's told at the very beginning of the film that he owns this hotel, and the hotel has fallen into disrepair. It's shabby. It is, um, it's Times have changed, he says to the writer of this novel that was written in 1985. So you go back out in these layers like a layer cake. Mustafa says, times have changed, but I love it all just the same, this enchanted old ruin, this hotel that is like a layer cake. And Mr. Mustafa's story is um, one where he starts out with nothing at all. He walks into this layer cake hotel and he has nothing to offer and yet he's taken on somehow he's taken on and it doesn't show it in this scene but he's taken on by Monsieur Gustave because because of who Monsieur Gustave is and we're going to find out more about who he is in just a moment but then also because of something that Zero says he has zero experience zero education zero family nothing to offer and yet he says, when asked, well, why did you come here? Why would you want to come here? He says, it's the Grand Budapest Hotel. Who wouldn't want to work here? He recognizes the greatness, the beauty, the legacy of this place. And in that moment, he and Gustav are united. He says, well, you could be on my team. Come on, we'll, we'll take you on for a trial period. And so then um, we go into the scene that we saw for... Um, 
a little bit in the trailer, and I want you to see more of it because we're going to see what Monsieur Gustave's character is like. Zero is going to tell us about Monsieur Gustave's character, and we're going to see his character played out over the rest of the film, which we won't watch today, of course. Gustave H. I became his No, 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 not the rainbow. And he was to be my counselor and guardian. What is a lobby boy? A lobby boy is completely invisible. He is always in sight. A lobby boy remembers what people hate. A lobby boy anticipates the client's needs before the needs are needed. A lobby boy is above all discreet to a fault. Our guests know their deepest secrets, some of which are frankly rather unseemly, will go with us through our graves. So keep your mouth shut, Zero. Yes, sir. That's all for now. I began to realize that many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. It seemed to be an essential part of his duties, but I believe it was also his pleasure. There's a moment later on in the film where you see Gustave and Zero in a confessional booth. I, I will not, won't tell you why, because it's worth finding out how they get there. But to see them in a confessional booth, I can't help but remember um, my own experience in the service industry and seeing, hearing this soliloquy right here from Monsieur Gustave about what it's like to be a lobby boy, what your job is. You're to be discreet. You carry people's secrets with you to the grave. Um, you know more about them than they know about themselves. Something I always remember about um, waiting tables when I was a waitress in New York, in Amherst, in Chicago, in Pittsburgh, is that your job as a server is to anticipate the need of the customer before they even know their need. Have you ever sat at a table and been amazed that when the server is silently, quietly, sometimes they'll do it with fanfare, can I get your glass? Because they want the tip. But you can always tell when your glass is always full and you never even notice the server. That invisibility and yet the service is impeccable. They see and recognize, know what you need even before you ask. And I can't help but think, I've been saying this a lot recently, so I don't know what that means, but somehow in ministry, I've never stopped serving and waiting tables. You know, we wait tables up there, which I, I love thinking about that. It's the ultimate hospitality. And the hospitality of the Grand Budapest Hotel is a grace offered to every one of its customers. They come there world-weary, and they walk in in these old days, the good old days, when hotels did everything. You hear Gustav saying that the hotel was supposed to be everything for its customers. They provided entertainment, um, food, uh, flowers, whatever it was that the hotel customer needed, the concierge would procure. And so you see what, how the concierges do this, that they have this secret league that helps them provide and procure what is needed in the moment, um, the most extravagant gift in the moment. There is grace extended all throughout through this vehicle of this hotel. And here, now we're going to listen to Monsieur Gustave's thoughts on the service industry in general and on his role as concierge. The requirements were always the same. They had to be rich. Oh, this is old. These are his women. Sorry. Oh, I can't. I can't stop that. He was, by the way, the most liberally perfumed man I have ever encountered. The scent announced his approach from a grave. It's just funny. You're gonna have to see it all.
you know, I'm, I'm going to fail on finding the clip because that's bound to happen right now. Um, but I'm going to read you in this one moment. During his nightly sermon, Monsieur Gustave says to... Um, he says to those who in, under his care who are serving with him, this is what he says. Um, Zero, as he's narrating about Monsieur Gustave, he says that Monsieur Gustave would always deliver a nightly sermon to the staff. And the content of the nightly sermon that we see depicted went this way. He said, rudeness in the customer is merely an expression of fear. People are afraid they won't get what they want. The most unattractive person only needs to be loved and they will open up like a flower. The most unattractive person only needs to be loved and they will open up like a flower. Sounds like grace, doesn't it? And he recognizes that his job is to extend grace to those who walk in the hotel, no matter what they receive in return. That as the invisible staff, they will receive rudeness and yet they are to extend grace. And we see this in the relationship that he has with um, this lobby boy, with um, Zero Mustafa. And so Monsieur Gustave adopts Zero as his protege. He takes him on as an employee, and then he starts to take on a fatherly figure to this young refugee with no family. Um, we saw in the clip for the trailer that there he is approving of the relationship between Zero and Agatha, almost like a father would for a young couple um, from an, another day, that he is interviewing Agatha. And you see his faults and his flaws. He's also flirting with Agatha. But he is interviewing her to make sure she's good enough for his boy, his lobby boy, his son essentially. You see the love that grows between them as a father figure and mentor and as a servant and boy. Um, even when Monsieur Gustave has to go to jail, yes he goes to jail and I'm not disclosing too much because it's so funny to watch how they end up in jail that you'll want to see it anyway. They end up in jail and, um, and even there their loyalty to each other is manifest throughout the whole course of the film. Um, and so this one clip really shows just how much Monsieur Gustave loves Zero as his son figure. They are in, um, it's not clear if they're in Austria or Germany, they're in somewhere that's very much on the verge of World War II, not necessarily World War II, but the precursor to World War II, um, when there was a rise in, um, in uh, checkpoints by the police and things like that along the borders and such. And so they're traveling by train. And of course, um, Zero Mustafa is in danger because he's an immigrant. He's clearly not Aryan. And we see this, it's underneath the whole film, but it only comes out in these outbursts once or twice, that underneath the fluff of the layer cake of the hotel, there is something dark that's lurking in the world around them, in the world outside the hotel, and it breaks into the hotel in some points in the way that Zero is threatened by it. And this is how Monsieur Gustave responds. Why are we still... Oh, oh Deborah. Now it's going to stop. Hold on. Why are we stopping at a barley field? Well, hello there, chaps. Buckingham. Thank you. How 
else can you respond? It's not a very flattering portrait, I'm afraid. I was once considered a great beauty. What's the F stand for? Fritz? France. France. I knew it! He's making a funny face. That's a migratory visa with stage three worker status, France, darling. He's with me. Come on, sir, please. Now, wait a minute. Sit down, Zero. His papers are in order. I cross-reference them myself with the Bureau of Labor and Servitude. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. He hasn't done anything wrong. Outrageous. The young man works for me at the Grand Budapest Hotel in Naples, but... Monsieur Gustave. My name is Henkels. I'm the son of Dr. and Mrs. Wolfgang Henkels Burgersdorfer. Do you remember me? I know exactly who you are. It's uncanny. You're little Albert. I'm terribly embarrassed. Release them. Release them! They're through it. But did you see how willing he was um, to defend his young protege? How willing he was to um, experience violence um, in order to protect and to save his young protege? That impulse um, uh, continues to show us that Monsieur Gustave is a man not just of um, the graces of culture, he's not just a cultured man with those kind of dignified graces that he clearly displays in his highly perfumed person in the delicacies that he loves and that he procures for those he loves, um, but that he is a man of grace who is willing to sacrifice his own security and his own safety on behalf of this young boy who he's virtually adopted. And so that's where our story as Christians segues with this story and this film. That we, as we are in relationship with God, we have nothing to offer. Zero. Family, education, experience. Our resume means nothing. Our family connections mean nothing. The years that we've lived in this life, that we've known all the things that we've known, that means nothing when it comes to standing um, as broken people as sinners in, um, in the presence of a holy God. We have nothing to offer, um, no resume that can cause us to stand in the face um, of judgment, essentially. And yet, Jesus is for us, like Monsieur Gustave, willing to give even his own self, willing to experience violence on our behalf in order to protect us um, from whatever it takes, from whatever is coming our way. He's willing to stand up for us. And it is because of that love of Jesus Christ that we can say along with St. Paul that we have been adopted by grace. Um, and this is what St. Paul talks about in both his letter to the Galatians and his letter to the Romans. Um, so here from Galatians chapter 4, St. Paul says, um, he says, um, 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. If you don't remember, ladies, that you're also included in that sons. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God, and that means that our inheritance is in God is a mighty one. I love the ministry, the Daughters of the King, which is an intercessory ministry, both within our parish, in the diocese, in the national church, um, even if just because of the name. Um, it is this identification of um, our relationship with God through the merits of Jesus Christ, that through Jesus' death for us, we are adopted. We belong to the King. We are daughters of the King. And I prefer daughters of the King to princesses, because then that has a whole host of connotations that I'm not sure are strong and beautiful and describe that worthiness that is imputed to us because of Jesus Christ. But the same is true for sons of the king, um, that we are adopted by grace into the family of God. And um, Paul continues, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And in Romans, he also talks about this in Romans 8.15. He says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All the inheritance of what belongs to Jesus Christ is ours through our connection with him, through our relationship with him. Um, We are zero. We have nothing to offer, and yet he has given us everything. Um, Any thoughts or questions about that before I close us a little early? Yeah, go ahead, Michael. In that, in the last scene you showed us, it occurred to me because you talked about the sermon beforehand. This idea of rudeness is being caused by fear. You see in that scene, Gustav immediately, when they open the door, he reacts very gracefully and you know, treats these soldiers as he would a guest at his hotel. You know, hello, chaps. And then, but as they go through, he starts to get rude as he starts to get scared. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, you know, their strength kind of overcomes his grace. And but then at the end, it's the grace that he showed, you know, way back to uh, the colonel's parents that kind of reaches through and gets him out of that situation. So yeah. the, the, the way these movies are constructed, you said layer cake, but it's Wes Anderson's very There's a lot of meat in, in it. And so I'm going to give you one more analogy before we go. I want to hear some more questions or thoughts or comments because I totally agree. I think that's one of the things why I like – I'm – I'm a-okay. Maybe this is why I pick movies that no one wants to see because they're movies that I am okay with seeing two or three or four times, and there's still more to be um, gotten from them. You know, chewing them and looking into them, there's still more to be received through them. Because so, and you see it in how much thought and care has been poured into it on the front end. And that's one of the ways that Wes Anderson is a very generous director. He thinks through everything. He's so meticulous in a strange way. And wooden. Do you notice how wooden the characters are? They're less wooden in this one than in some of them. But I really appreciate there's something psychologically deep about the way his characters are so wooden. Talking like this, 
talking to each other like this, talking back to the screen like this. There's something about that that gives us the freedom to laugh at our own awkwardnesses and the awkwardnesses in our own relationships. He is able to, in his strange comedic style, sort of um, elude to them uh, obliquely and help us feel more comfortable with ourselves and with our own awkwardnesses. So there's a grace in that even from the director. Other thoughts or observations? Yeah, please. Um, well, I love the fact that his name is Zero, as you played on, but then it made me think of Julian's book, um, mm. Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, Jesus Plus Zero Equals Everything. Yeah. And I could be wrong, but just the facts about the movie, I think the character, the actor that plays Zero, yeah. didn't he, I think he went with his brother to the audition. He had no intention to audition, and they convinced him to audition, he got smart. That's great. I hadn't read that, but that makes I a lot of sense. Well, there's something to be said for young actors and child actors. The ones that are good are actually the ones who've never done it before. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want them to be self-aware. As an actor, you don't want to be like, now I'm going to do this. And for, for a young actor, it's hard to not be self-conscious and, and self-aware. If I'm right, then he also brought nothing to the table. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, the actor as well as the character. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. Maybe I should do this next week and talk about that. No, I think you are right. Um, other thoughts? Anything else that you um, notice or observe or questions that you have about it? It is a strange film. Well, I will say throughout the film, if you've seen it, there are these um, two things about it. The film itself, I keep talking about it being like a layer cake. The hotel is fluffy, pink, airy, um, gracious, lots of flowers and perfume and thick carpet. And you can just imagine what it's like. And it's whimsical. And it's totally imaginative. And it's all seen through the eyes of hindsight. So, of course, hindsight is 2020. So, in the way Wesley Anderson depicts it, it is far more marvelous than it probably ever was. But it's incredible. It's incredible to see. It's an incredible world to live in for just 90 minutes. Um, but there's something about it. It seems so extravagant, so beautiful, like candy, like even the pastries, if you remember, that Agatha makes. Agatha with the tattoo of Mexico on her face, just strange random detail, Um, but she is a baker in Mendel's Bakery and she bakes these incredibly delicious, um, beautiful pastries, just glorious, all colors, icing galore, so delicious and so physically beautiful that you almost don't want to eat it, but then you can tell that they taste delicious. I have a sweet tooth, can you tell? So when I see it in the film, I'm like, I want that cake. I want that cake. And they wrap it up in this beautiful, beautiful um, box. Well, um, there, spoiler alert, sorry, I should have told you that at the beginning. There's one thing, it's not the total ending. This is near, near the end. One of the ways they're in prison, um, Michel Gustave makes friends with these hardened criminals, which is quite a juxtaposition with all his dignity and culture and refinement. There he is. He holds his own against these hardened and violent criminals there in prison. And they decide to include him in their escape plan. And their escape plan involves baking teeny tiny masonry tools, rock shovels, pixies, axes into those pastries. Um, so that when they get them brought in, because somehow when they're brought in, the guards, they chop everything in half. You know, anything, any food that's brought in, they make sure there's no weapon or nothing in there. Except for the pastries, they just can't because they're so beautiful, they can't destroy them. And so it's in this fluffy layer cake, fluffy, gorgeous, um, ethereal pastry that these 
hardened little um, tools are brought in, and those tools are their means of escape from the prison. That is how they're brought out. And there is um, substance to this layer cake of a film. So if the film is as fluffy as the Grand Budapest Hotel itself, as much like a layer cake, there is within it um, some hardened truth, some pure steel right in the very center of it um, that breaks out breaks us out of our bondage, out of our bondage in sin and our bondage really just in ourselves. Um, just like it breaks Monsieur Gustave out of prison. And there's something about the truth that's depicted about human nature, about the evil in the world, and yet also about the grace that's um, available to us somehow in this life. Um, and you see this grace mentioned, it's mentioned twice, in the film, first Mustafa, um, first Monsieur Gustave uses it of the hotel itself. And then um, towards the end of the film, Mustafa uses it of Monsieur Gustave. And so this quote has been referred um, both to the hotel, both to the main character and the hotel. There are faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. There are faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. Um, that's present in the hotel. That's present in the person of Monsieur Gustave. And for us in our world, as boring and as unfluffy um, as it is in comparison with this uh, world in the Grand Budapest Hotel, in this barbaric slaughterhouse that is this world, there are faint glimmers of civilization. And the pure, true glimmer of civilization is actually a shining, bright, true light. And that is Jesus Christ. And as we are unified with him through faith, we too then reflect his glory to the world, like moons reflecting the sun. And we too, by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, can be transformed into instruments of grace and mercy to those in our lives. Just like Monsieur Gustave is an instrument of grace and mercy to every person he encounters. He strives for that. Um, and he must have received it along the way, somewhere, somehow. And so we who have received grace by God's grace can also be instruments of grace to others. So let's pray. <coughs> Dear Lord God, thank you for uh, grafting us into your family, into your presence even, through your son Jesus Christ. Thank you that you call us sons and daughters, uh, not because of what we've done, uh, but because of what Jesus has done. Thank you, Lord, that you, even those words that you said over Jesus at his baptism, are through his cross, words that you say over, to, uh, over us. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased. And so, Lord, cause that uh, word of grace to transform us, um, to make us into soft vessels of grace for people in need in our world. And we ask this for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.